Welcome to WeAreTechnology.com's User-Friendly 2.0 with host Bill Sickens, Technology Architect. And this is User-Friendly 2.0. I'm your host, Bill Sickens. With me, Gretchen and Bill, welcome to this week's show. Hello. So we've got a good interview coming up next uh, part of the show. We're going to be talking uh, cryptocurrency and talking to an expert who's founded a company on investing with crypto and some interesting ways to get some interest back. They're actually an international company based in the United Kingdom. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to look and see the different methodologies and some of the things that they've been able to achieve and some of the problems they face doing all of this kind of stuff. But crypto continues to be a very interesting thing. And I still sum it up with that commercial that uh, they used to play where the guy's there with his phone. He's like, oh, I'm a millionaire. And then 10 seconds later, oh, I'm not. Oh, I'm a millionaire again, you know, so. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. So anyway, so we got that coming up. Uh, On our own front, we are going to be taking a season break. So this will be our last new show for the summer. And we start with the fall season on September 16th. So we're going to have that coming up. So check out the website in the meantime, and we will have our back episodes, good time to catch up on anything you may have missed, although I know no one ever misses any of our user-friendly shows. Um, stop looking at me like that. So anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that note, let's go to the news. You work hard growing your business, but when it comes to marketing and branding, you simply don't have the time. You need a trusted partner to take on your advertising goals and produce results. Whatever your budget and deadlines are, Brian Kelly Digital Media is your trusted partner. We are ready to make your marketing and branding goals a reality. Your time is precious, and so is your advertising budget. Get more bang for your buck with Brian Kelly Digital Media. Schedule your free consultation today at 503-474-7885. That's 503-474-7885. So what's in the news? AI optical scans detect Parkinson's seven years in advance. You know, it's interesting. We This year has been kind of the year of AI, and I don't think that was entirely expected at the beginning of the year. but. AI in of itself, artificial intelligence, is actually not brand new. The way that it's manifesting itself is, but this has been around for a while. But there's a lot of things going on this year that are allowing developers to be able to take artificial intelligence and use it in ways that hadn't been done before. And both sides of the coin, this being certainly the positive side, is that this technology allows for a lot of advancement in the medical world. Now, this particular thing is scanning for Parkinson's disease. And uh, this is a disease that is just, I, I, my heart goes out to anybody that has to deal with this. It is something that just would be, uh, you know, crazy awful. But maybe being able to get it in advance this much sooner will eventually allow for some additional treatments or at least staying off the disease for a little bit longer. And again, this is just one area where we're seeing this type of technology really just out of the door, being able to change things in a very, very positive way. 
Speaking of AI, Eleven Labs AI voice generator can now fake your voice in 30 languages. Yeah, so this would be the other side of that coin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just oh, great. Now, I can tell you right out that anybody that knows me, if this happened, would know that this is fake because I do not speak 30 languages. I can barely speak English. (laughs) (laughs) Really? (laughs) But it is um, definitely something we've talked about, the whole idea of deep fakes and different things like that. And it is definitely a technology that can be used Uh, In ways that may not be so good. Now, one positive side to language is with AI, it is actually possible to speak and be heard in another language or understand in reverse, you know, that type of a thing. So it definitely opens stuff up for instant translations. Now, language translation is Google Translate and stuff like that's been around for a long time. But this is changing how all that works and making it a lot more real-time and something that is better. But the ability to fake someone's voice at all, whatever language it's in, is definitely something that could be abused, I would think. I don't see anybody doing that. Do you guys? Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't all the sarcasm. See, I, I could see this being used uh, for a, on a positive level for if you have a movie or a cartoon where you mm-hmm. have great voice actors. And you want to keep that 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 wonderful voice, like uh, the guy who does Thrawn on on Rebels, his beautiful voice. And um, I could see, you know, being able to translate his voice into other languages, so other you know people could enjoy the cartoon. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And there are positive things like that. I remember the first time I saw Star Trek: The Next Generation dubbed in German. And yeah. it, just, it just didn't work I, <laughs> <laughs> but uh 11 lab calls this voice cloning tech and they're talking about using it as a way to create audiobooks videos and even voice in pcs and video games so you know there's your application of there i do think and you know again this is i think a great deal of the reason behind the sag strike and writer's guild and all the stuff that's going on on this is that if you do that, the performer should still really earn a royalty for that because it is his voice, even though it's computer modified, right? So uh-huh. anyway, a lot of ground to be covered on that front. But the fact that the text here, purely from that standpoint, used in a positive way, could be really cool. The, right now, the voice cloning supports 22 languages. Uh, some of them that they can do right out of the gate include Ukrainian, Korean, Swedish, Arabic, and obviously a number of others. Man uses strange rock as a doorstep for decades. It turned out to be worth a fortune. Yeah, and you know, I <laughs> thought I was guilty of this. I had a this thing that I used as a doorstop that turned out to be an antique iron. And yeah. I found out it was worth a couple hundred dollars, but this oh. goes way beyond that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he had this rock and it made a great doorstop, and I'm sure it worked well for that purpose because it was 22 pounds and it turned out to be meteorite. Mm-hmm. And meteorites, especially the good ones, especially like that, can be worth a lot of money. Price tag on this one, 75 grand. Wow. I think I'd go buy a doorstop and sell my rock, you know, but that's just me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and also that story told about um, that the rock was dug up on the property that he lived on. Yeah. Yeah. It was dug up on his property. Um, you know, there was no problem with anything like that. They just found it and 
oh, this is a heavy rock and it's an interesting shape. And it ended up being a doorstop. I wonder how many of us have stuff, you know, that's laying around that we have no idea has some massive value to it. And you're like, I did that with this. <laughs> it happens. Uh, EV battery enabling a 250 mile driving range on a 10 minute charge. Yep, this is being developed. Uh, so that got cut off there a little bit. But what it is, is it is a Chinese company. Um, there's a lot of different manufacturers and engineers out there trying to solve the battery problem. And that's been the big thing with EVs. They're difficult to recycle. They're difficult to recharge. You can fill your gasoline or hydrogen fuel cell powered car up and, you know, very quickly. It takes a couple of minutes to get a charge onto a battery can take a half hour or more. There have been some horror stories with this, a little bit of a tangent on this, but just proves the point is there's a gentleman that bought a a Ford F-150 Lightning uh, in Canada. Uh, He attempted to take a road trip into the United States and between charging stations not working and everything else, the car quit and he had to have a towed and he had to rent another car to be able to complete his trip. And this, uh, anybody that's bought a Lightning or even looked at them knows they're not cheap. And it wasn't the fault of the car. It was just a situation where the infrastructure, it does not exist yet. Uh, and didn't work right, you know, to a point where it actually created that kind of a situation. So getting batteries that charge faster, have a longer range, and the other end of it that are easier to recycle are certainly kind of the holy grail of this and will be a make it or break it, I think, with electric cars. Now, not to say that they're being shunned. Electric cars are gaining in popularity and will continue to do so, especially with gasoline-powered cars being illegal to sell in a lot of places by about 2030. So, you know, it's forcing it, and it is cleaner in certain situations. If you look at the carbon footprint that's created for manufacturing an electric vehicle, it they say is when you hit about 30,000 miles on it, that's when it goes to being better than gasoline. So that's what it takes to get up to that point. And yeah. You know, so so dealing with it from that, and that doesn't include the recycling of the batteries after they're done, which is a big problem. However, between when we first started talking about this last year and now, there are some technologies coming into their own that are helping with this and making that better. But in this particular place, you're taking your charge from 30 minutes or more to 10 minutes. That does make a difference when you think yeah. about it. My only concern with that is, is the reason why batteries aren't charging you know super fast is because it creates a lot of heat mm-hmm. and so that's why you know going up to a what is it a 15 watt for your phone it's faster but it's a little bit more risk and it wasn't available you know years ago and absolutely and you know there's a, other things too that aren't really kind of on the forefront of all of this is most electric cars you can only charge to about 90 percent yeah. Um, so if the range on a full charge is, you know, a thousand miles, that, that would be absolutely incredible. But just for ease and numbers, you're really only going to get 900 miles when you charge it up because you can't go to the full thing, even though that's in the rating. And temperature affects this. If it oh, gets yeah. very cold or very hot, that causes all kinds of problems. And I know with some of these batteries, if it gets cold enough, they simply won't recharge. Yeah. So, you know, I have that problem on my outdoor ring cameras. When we get into the time up here in Oregon, we get a you know a few weeks, there's a snowflake in Portland and the whole city shuts down for a month. <laughs> and when that happens every year, um, you do get to a point where the 
camera batteries will stop working and they're no longer there. Now you can take them out, bring them in and recharge them. But the moment you put them back into the cold, you start having problems again. The same thing can happen with the heat. Now, the company here uh, called uh, Cattel, C-A-T-L, I believe is how you say that, actually is building heating modules into the batteries for when it gets cold to be able to get around the cold problem. But Bill, like you say, on the other end, if you produce too much heat, and if you really produce too much heat, that can cause a fire, you know? Exactly. And a fire that is we are seeing are very difficult to put out sometimes. Uh, when your electric car goes on fire, just, you know, about the only thing you can do is make s'mores for the next three days because you're not going to get that fire out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I my uh, I have these Ego batteries for my lawnmower and uh, snowblower. And I keep an eye on them because sometimes they get warm. So uh, I, I'm not sure what's going on with them. But I, you know. Getting warm is one thing because they will get warm discharging. They will get warm charging. Mm-hmm. It's hot is when you yeah. have a problem or swollen. Yeah. Um, swollen they have a yeah, they have a term for it when you have like I do where I have a little uh, 12 amp one that I use for uh, my uh, costuming. They call it a spicy pillow and that's when it starts. The gas starts releasing and that's basically when it's starting to become a hand grenade. Oh, yep. my. That doesn't Something sound like Samsung figured out a few years ago, too. I, I still remember this was before COVID. So, you know, it was before the great black hole of the last three years. But I can remember when that happened and you got on a flame you, know, you are on a plane. You have a Samsung battery. Well, uh, um, you know, maybe <laughs> go, go take another airline. You know, you didn't do that. But it was like, <laughs> and even today, if you they ask you when you check your bag, uh, at least Alaska does this is do you have these type of batteries in your luggage, in your check bag? And if you do, take it out and bring it into the cabin because of the pressure differentiation in the baggage compartment can cause problems. And they really don't want their plane to blow up, which I kind of support, especially if I happen to be on it at the time. So, you know, I mean, God. so I'm glad they're taking the appropriate precautions. But yeah, it, it is definitely new technology. Now, given how much stuff uses lithium batteries, I think they are actually pretty safe because you hear about things when they happen, but the other 98% of the time they don't. So, you know, it's not like it's a hand grenade waiting to go off, but when you have a problem, you really have a problem, you know? Yeah. No, and I mean, that's the truth. You know, a lot of them, they have a chip in them where it doesn't allow them to charge up or if there's a problem with uh, wires getting crossed or discharging too fast, it'll stop it. There, yeah. those things are very important. Um, but you know, some people in hobbies still get batteries packs that don't have that chip, and I can tell you from experience, they go off like a road flare. Oh yeah, yeah. If you don't have the well, yeah, and you know that was part of Samsung's problem is that the um, chip, as you talked about, that monitors that and stops the charging, was in the charger, not the battery. So yeah. when we had these problems, it was when you went and bought the cheap aftermarket charger for ten bucks off Amazon that didn't have the appropriate technology and just sent power until, you know, your house burned down. So uh, <laughs> uh, the later devices, I, I pick on, on Samsung. I actually do like their tech and they obviously took care of all of this and, and fixed it. And since then, the parts have been moved into the device. Um, but that is also one of the reasons why sometimes now, if you buy an aftermarket charger that's not designed for your device, it won't work anymore because it lacks some of the safety technology. Or if you're Apple, you just didn't pay Apple enough. But, you know, that's a whole other story. <laughs> okay. All right. On a completely different topic, 
India makes historic uncrewed landing on the moon's South Pole. That's so this idea. is actually really cool. And yeah. uh, the Indian Space Research Organization sent this up. Uh, it's uh, what they, as you say, an uncrewed robotic moon lander landed at about 8.30 a.m. Eastern uh, this last Wednesday uh, successfully. And one of the big deals about the moon South Pole is because they think that there is water in ice. So when we eventually probably colonize the moon or at least get up and do more extensive trips, mining, all that kind of stuff, it would be a way to get water. And um, so this is really something that's kind of cool. And it's kind of nice because it stands out from the Russian spacecraft that died on its way um, <laughs> a, a little while ago. I think it was about a week ago. Um, but, you know, oh, man. Um, the Russians actually sent something up. I didn't even hear about it. Yeah, they did. And uh, they were sending it to the same area. And it crashed into the moon in another part. It didn't make it into the orbit. It was launched on July 14th um, called Luna 25. And um, I don't know, maybe some hacker got in and screwed up their programming. It's hard to say. The young Elon Musk once sweet-talked a random mall salesman into giving him a Dungeons & Dragons module for free. Now, of course, at the time that this happened, he was not in the same financial category he is now. But Elon Musk games, and uh, this is kind of an interesting thing. This was in a South African mall. And the rumor says that most likely the module he got was something called Temple of Elemental Evil. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You might be familiar with that. That is a module. And I don't know if they're particularly valuable. I know some of the really old stuff is now. But um, just a kind of an interesting thing. He talked him out of it. I guess he still has it, uh, even though he hasn't confirmed which one it is. Uh, Elon also made a statement that his character that he likes the best to play is a paladin. So um, uh, yeah. that explains a lot. <laughs> I've never actually played a paladin. I've, I've looked I at have. them. They're really difficult to play. You have all these rules and there's no freedom. <laughs> just, well, just, well, at least the old editions, the newer editions are a lot more open. Oh, really? Just, okay. I, you know, I've got some experience acting, but I just don't think I could do that. I, I don't have it in me to be that quite, uh, you know, um, it just yeah, seems whole, like. <laughs> it's a little too rigid for me. I like a little more, you know realistic <laughs> oh, creation on the topic what character what is your favorite character class in dungeons and dragons you know so far lately the last couple of years i just like playing an archer that just seems to be my favorite thing don't yeah, know why just, it works for me <laughs> i don't know i've always liked the fighter i just thump things it's easy bill you uh, do all kinds of different ones i know oh yeah um currently my favorites are wizard and bard Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Once you learn how to use magic missile. So somebody once told me after I was really being screwed <laughs> up, with that, just think of it as your sword. Okay, that works. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just mad at my DM right now. He won't let me bring my uh, cyberpunk character into the D&D &D game. <laughs> I'm not a way to convert it properly, you know? I, I, just, I, just, I just call him a Warforged that lights up. Anyway. <laughs> Tech layoffs, 
are slowing down. Yeah, the bigger companies aren't rehiring yet, although I'm starting to see that too. But, you know, and there was a lot of concern about this when all this started, you know, late last year, that, oh man, is the, you know, if I'm a programmer, am I going to be unemployed? And the answer is no. And it just basically went from there being a super shortage of programmers to a shortage of programmers. And right now today, and we monitor, you know, sites like Monster and Indeed and so on, just to kind of keep an idea of the state of the industry. And I get just as many listings for various tech positions as I did a year ago. It's just sometimes smaller companies. But what's really cool about that is you can be a lot more plugged in to innovation and development sometimes if you find the right company to work for that's open to that kind of advice and isn't quite so corporate my opinion. Now, there's people that like the corporate culture too, and that's fine. It's just kind of nice to be able to have a little bit more, I don't know, creativity. I think for most programmers, I know certainly for me, I can't draw a straight line, but where I do create is computer code. And to be in a position where you're allowed to kind of stretch out and try some different things is kind of fun, you know? So um, I think a lot of people have just simply changed jobs and been able to kind of find a different outlet to what they do. The other thing that's interesting about all this too is tech kind of was the first remote work industry that you could really get into just because it was the easiest one. You bring your laptop home, you can code, you can get on the network, do what you need to do. And it's one of the ones that seems to be fighting the most, the idea of going back to the office. There's some hybrid stuff out there and that type of a thing. But I know from my own standpoint as a a uh, person that runs a company that does programming and is looking for programmers. By the way, if you're a PHP programmer, please email me if you're looking for a job. Uh, anyway, uh, n- not that that was a plug or anything, but at the end oh, of the no. day, um, <laughs> <laughs> it has been apparent that a lot of what I'm seeing now are people that want to be able to continue working remotely for a variety of reasons. And it is something that's a lot easier to do in the tech industry in many ways than it is in some others. So, you know, it makes some sense from there. And I don't know, I'm just trying to think where to where to really kind of give advice on this because at the end of the day, if you're a programmer and you want a job, you're going to get one. And it's not like you're going to get paid less or take longer to get in there. It's just going to be a little bit different than what it would have been a year ago. And on the flip side, Twitter, now X, and Facebook are trying to hire back some of the people they laid off. So you know, at least from that standpoint, that's where I'm saying officially they're saying that they're not hiring back. Maybe not, a fi- you know, just yet where it's in the numbers, but we're starting to see it. So it kind of, you know, peaked and then dropped and now we're ramping back up here a little bit. So interesting thing to see the see the state of the industry and where that goes. All right. So like I said, in the beginning of the segment, we are going to be taking a break for a couple of weeks. When we come back, we're going to have some cool new things. We have a new reporter that's coming on board. Now, he's been on before, uh, Bradley Weston, doing some movie reviews and that type of a thing, but he's actually covering a number of Comic-Cons and other shows like that in the Midwest and East Coast, some places that we haven't gotten to a lot. So I'm looking forward. So when we get back that week, he's going to be coming on and doing a review of a number of shows. This weekend, where we're at right now, I'm not sure, I think it's St. Louis, where he absolutely wants to see William Shatner because at 93, I believe now, He's kind of concerned that he may not get that opportunity in the future. So, you know, kind of cool to see that out there. But it's going to be interesting to see what's different from some of the stuff that we've seen 
and some of the stuff from other parts of the country. Well, after the break, we've got that great crypto interview coming up. So don't go away. We will be right back. Welcome back. This is User Friendly 2.0. Check out our website, userfriendlyshow.com. That is where you submit your questions, your comments, find our social media, read our articles, and check out the back episodes. Know anyone with an outdated business photo? Zing Studio Sherwood is a full service portrait studio offering headshots and portraits to the Sherwood community and beyond, specializing in bringing out the best in every subject. Zing Studio Sherwood. Let's celebrate what makes you extraordinary. ZingSherwood.com. So we've got a really interesting interview today. We're going to be uh, talking to a gentleman, Chris Murphy is his name, who has a company that he's a founder of that is dealing in the world of cryptocurrency. And what they're offering is basically an investment platform where you can make interest and there's a bit of a lottery element even attached to it, which he'll talk about in some more detail when we get there. All legal, of course, but you know, or at least as far as we know. And when you operate a thing like this, where you're trying to be in line with the laws of the different countries that you work in, it can be a very difficult thing to do. And he's going to go into some detail on how they're trying to deal with some of this and what countries they do and don't work in and, you know, how you can involve and actually maybe make some money off of this. But I know, Gretchen, you had some questions about some of the things he came up with. And I figured let's t- let's touch on that actually before we do the interview. So going into it, we kind of have a basis. Yeah, um, I was hoping that maybe you could define the term securities as far as the financial world. Yeah, and you know the reason this is important is because they are trying to regulate cryptocurrency as a security. To use that term in the United States, and there's been a lot dealing with that. So a security is a usually a type of an investment. So there's generally speaking, there's no guaranteed returns, there's no guaranteed safety, but you are, if it's a registered security, you're playing in a level playing field, at least hopefully. So that would be like buying stock in a company, you know, or something of that nature. You can lose money. It's not guaranteed to hold value, but there's certain regulations. So I think probably what be good to define here is what is not a security. Some things, currency would be an example. Cash is cash. That's not a security. Same thing, a check. Uh, bank line of credit, all of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, those different things are definitely uh, not security. So securities are more kind of an investment standpoint. Now, somebody that's an expert in finance could give a much better explanation on this. It's just 10,000 foot. Okay. And I would have also liked to have had maybe a better definition of, he referred to people as players. So it made it almost sound like, are these people playing a game like a, a gambling or is this a slang term for investors? They're slang terms. Um, a player is somebody that plays within the investment. It's not like a player in a video game. Okay. And um, it, actually, you're going to hear a couple of different terms like that during the interview. Another one is the term unicorn. Yes, I remember and, that. Um, yeah. You know, first thing that comes to mind is a horse with a uh, you know, of a unicorn, right? So, but um, yeah. <laughs> in the top of the finance world, uh, it's a privately held startup company with a valuation of $1 billion or more. Okay, that's okay. So it's something pretty fabulous, kind of like a unicorn. <laughs> okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I get, I get it. I get it. <laughs> would be that connection, right? 
But yeah, yeah. it's a company that's a, a startup that has a great deal of value. The term came out of Palo Alto, California uh, in the early 2000s. And it, this came with dealing with a lot of the tech startups, which at the time were worth a lot, just right out of the gate. And I think you already kind of hit on one of the other things. This sounds like it's a risky or a high risk investment. It's not like something very solid. You could it's, lose everything. Well, it's higher risk because it's not guaranteed. So like if you put your money in a bank account in the United States, in most cases, it's FDIC insured up to usually, I think it's $250,000 now. So if the bank fails or if something happens along those lines, your money is reasonably secured. When you invest in something like stock or other forms of security, the company could go out of business. So in other words, if you invested in Bed Bath & Beyond a year ago, that investment would not have yielded very good results at this point because you would have lost all your money. So as far as high risk, I think a better explanation of that is it's higher risk than something like just putting your money in the bank for interest. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing to do. I mean, if you take more risk, you can certainly have the potential of more return. But that's why there is regulation on this stuff, or at least there should be, because what you want when you're going to do that is if you're going to take a higher risk, you want a level playing field. You want to know that what you're being told is accurate, the information is valid. And one of the problems with crypto, and, and our guest is going to get into this, but in the United States is they don't have a lot of regulation. They're trying to make it a security. But the problem with that is, is that the way they define that seems to change the same way that I change my shirts. And that's <laughs> making it very difficult for companies to be able to get into and you know play in, in a world, know what they're dealing with. Well, anyway, let's go ahead and go into our interview, and then we can talk a little bit more about this on the end. Joining us now, Chris James Murphy, founder of Clink Finance. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Well, let's, let's just go ahead and dive right in. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your company? Sure. Uh, well, my name is Chris. I'm an Irish national based out of Germany. Um, I am a co-founder set up uh, Clink Finance towards the very end of 2021, very early 2022 where we started to basically get, uh, validate gamification in personal finance. So from the very top level, just more from uh, an introduction of, of where we come up, came up with Clink before I actually jump into the details of it, myself and my co-founder were um, basically involved with a, a number of venture builders across Europe, um, some known as tech stars. I'm sure you might have heard of them. They're, they're quite popular venture schemes. I was part of Antwerp. So through that community, basically, we met and uh, had very much a, a passion for, for the personal finance space and, and obviously gamification within that as well. So in terms of my background, uh, I've worked commercially across multiple different industries, but specifically had been around kind of MarTech commercial uh, engagement with direct-to-consumer businesses, working with Twitter and also LinkedIn in my younger years. So I had worked with plenty of consumer fintech businesses. I'd worked with plenty of gaming clients and I had seen the benefits and the weighing out of, of, of both industries basically and, and gelling them together. So my uh, co-founder, Philip, he's worked uh, across a number of uh, venture builders, as I mentioned, but also been very involved in the financial space and worked with a number of unicorns out of Germany, basically, that were in the fintech region. So we're very much native to that, to that space. So when we uh, basically came together, we had wanted to set out basically an understanding uh, how we could bridge both worlds together, right? 
So we've seen some emerging players in the markets, basically, that had enabled basically gamification to take on better consumer actions and in their personal financial habits. But what we really landed on was a mechanism known as prize link savings. So I appreciate it if you're in the US, uh, I'm unsure fully where, where all the listeners may, may be in the world, but prize link savings isn't so apparent in the US market, but it's actually a very uh, popular savings scheme globally. Uh, so in the UK, there's over a hundred billion pounds in assets under management in prize link savings accounts. Um, it's also very co- uh, popular in Commonwealth countries, such as India, Pakistan, Australia, and Canada. But basically, the principle of pricing savings is where you uh, gamify the interest payments on saving over time. So instead of earning a fixed rate of interest, such as 2 3 or 4%, what pricing savings services basically do uh, is they aggregate all the deposits together, and the institutional amount of interest that's earned on all the assets is then distributed to some users every week or every day. It depends on the pricing savings system, whereby participants still save their money over time, will have the opportunity to earn huge amounts of interest just simply for participating with the with the accounts. So uh, this was revolutionized in the 1960s in the UK, whereby at this point in time, the saving system carves out millionaires every couple of weeks uh, in the UK system. But it's very archaic. It's a web one type model. It's traditional banking. Uh, I personally engaged with it actually as a child. Uh, being based out of Ireland, I, I was a part of these saving systems, but they weren't digitized in any way or form. And they certainly weren't brought to the digital asset space, which is where we're operating in, where we're crypto-led platform. So yeah, basically uh, a, a lot of uh, whiteboards, a lot of deliberation, a lot of planning, a lot of talking to VCs, and it basically led us to the formation of Clink Finance. Uh, at this point in time, basically, uh, we're a gamified hardware platform, as I've mentioned, that follows this prize-link saving system. Um, and yeah, at the pre-seed phase of our, of our company, our product is live a few months now. We're about to do a major upgrade to the platform. We have over uh, 5,000 users at this point, very strong growing community, uh, communities from all over the world. So we have users from Brazil, Europe, uh, Asia, North America, something we're very proud of in, in this very early stage of the business. So yeah, that's a bit about us and, and how we came to build Plank. I'll probably pause there. Sure. Tell us a little bit about your platform. Sure. So um, basically, it is a uh, platform whereby users can hold and earn interest and, and obviously passively invest in various different crypto assets. So at this point in time, users can invest in major stable coins, USDC, DAI, Tether, uh, on Bitcoin, Ethereum. We have another uh, announcement of, of further token pools to come. So basically, aggregated savings pools for, for these various different crypto tokens. So users can either transfer crypto into the platform. Uh, it's very chart-based. There's a lot of analytics, basically, on how their platform or their portfolio um, is performing. But they're also able to purchase crypto directly through uh, bank transfer uh, or credit card as well, through third-party integration. So we really operate as a neobank-type service. So uh, again, being in the space that I, uh, myself and my co-founder have been in previously, um, we very much like that kind of digitized feel uh, towards a neobanking-type service, such as Revolut, uh, the Chase banking apps, etc. If you're in the U.S. market, where they're very easy to use, very seamless, so a very easy user experience. But yeah, subsequently, what happens on the platform? For every twenty-five dollars you hold worth of each crypto token, you're basically given a ticket. Uh, that ticket basically part- uh, participates in the randomized uh, prize payout distribution via sweepstakes mechanism. So almost like a no-loss lottery is, is probably the simplest way to um, 
to apply apply the description without having any visual representation to the listeners. Um, so yeah, for every $25 you hold, you have a higher probability to earn. Uh, every 24 hours, we run a cycle of payouts. Payouts run from a couple of cents all the way up to uh, $100,000 per ticket. Uh, we're actually in the process of trying to improve that payout uh, even higher by working with third-party insurers. So we really see ourselves as a competition towards the Powerball even if we become a big enough business. And as I've mentioned, if the liquidity pools become large enough, and the yield pools become large enough, and so do the price payout. So it's a completely scalable model, basically, um, in terms of carving out millionaires in a completely different way, in uh, a completely different model of investing, basically, that's available, what we feel is out in the market at this point in time. So basically what you're saying is you've taken kind of this Web1 banking model that you were talking about previously with saving pools, and taking it to the point where crypto will work with it now and it's online and digital and works as a 2023 app should. I, I'm probably oversimplifying, but if I'm understanding correctly, that's basically what this is. That's the best way to describe it, I would say, right? And maybe just a point to make in that. So uh, if you look at the global interest rates uh, at this point in time, uh, as everyone is feeling the burn there, they're quite high. Uh, but what you would see from traditional yeah. banking, yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's dismal what the retail banks will still offer on, on current accounts, etc., uh, in terms of interest rates. So uh, there's a real problem there, right? Uh, and what we're very much mission-driven by at this point in time, basically, is that we want to bridge users into the blockchain economy. There's plenty of opportunity to earn the yield based on the blockchain economy in terms of interest rates, in terms of liquidity, in terms of staking on certain um, tokens, basically where you can actually drive the actual uh, network by distributing tokens and verifying transactions which earn you rewards. There's a huge wealth of being able to earn on top of your principal within the blockchain economy, which we feel even in this complete bear cycle with high interest rates, the normal consumers actually aren't meeting at this point in time. So um, but in short, I would actually say that the model that I presented, this Web1 model, actually lends itself even more to the digital asset economy than it did within the actual traditional banking systems. So let me ask you a question. In uh, some countries like the United States, where the banking laws are in some cases somewhat archaic and have barely caught up with the fact that there's an internet, much less Web3 and some of the new you know things yeah. that we have out there. Have you had any problems internationally with that? Or is it something mm. that just anybody can use? Or is there anything that people should be aware of before they would get started on something like what you're offering? Sure, of course. So uh, full disclosure, we actually don't take any users from the U.S. market at this point in time. The way in which we're actually set up is that uh, we are a, a licensed institution, basically, uh, as every other uh, banking service is. So uh, we have a U.K. holding. That's where we're registered. We're a U.K. company. But we also hold European licensing and registration for virtual asset service provision um, in Poland. So that allows us to operate at this point in time. Um, with no solicitation to users coming on board for most jurisdictions globally. So as I've mentioned, we have users from Latin America, of course, users in Europe, uh, some users in APAC markets. Um, we KYC and AML our users as you would on board with a typical service, basically to ensure uh, uh, protection, ensure no anti-money laundering is, is going on through our services, acting basically in the best practices of regulators and compliance. This is something that's always shifting and we're trying to basically uh, cater towards as, as, as a platform. Um, but with the current state of the U.S. market in terms of the SEC and their outlook on digital assets at this point, uh, unfortunately, we, we cannot take U.S. users at this point in time, but it's something we're looking uh, quite closely at. 
uh, I'm hoping that the regulators in the US would be able to uh, basically come to terms with solid legislation that we can act upon uh, to offer our services within the, the US market at this point in time. You know, I imagine that's really been kind of an issue because the with cryptocurrency and everything is the regulation has been so, I don't know, for lack of a better term, weird. And it seems to change in some cases day by day. I think that would make it really tough for an organization like yours that's trying to do it in the right way to be able to keep up because what is right today might not be tomorrow. And I, I guess, is that an issue? Uh, certainly. So um, if you see the, the state of the U.S. market now, uh, predominantly Coinbase and, and bigger institutions, Coinbase is a publicly listed business. Uh, so first of all, their, their financials, everything is, is completely publicly available to people at all time. They work as, 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 a, as a publicly listed business. Um, they are going to head to head with the SEC. Uh, a number of other players basically um, of the caliber of, of Coinbase are all basically lobbying together to get uh, the legislation that, that's needed, right? So it's not a question of that uh, the legislation is wrong or the legislation that's been put in front of these players uh, is unclear. It's simply that it's not there whatsoever, right? Uh, and from my understanding, again, I, I can't speak as a spokesperson for these businesses, right? I'm not, as we said, we're, we're quite a small company and we're not US-based. But the, the key factor that seems to be is that the, the US uh, uh, SEC seems to keep changing their mind, right? So what was a decision a couple of years ago, I even believe when Coinbase listed, they were given the go-ahead to list a number of different tokens, etc., Bitcoin, Ethereum, a number of secondary tokens as well, whereby they were given permission to do so. They became a publicly listed business. Other businesses as well that operated in the U.S. market uh, were able to operate, of course, in, in the eyes of, of standard financial laws, right? There's the directive of best practices. They're still doing the AML, KYCs, as I've mentioned. But the issue now is that there's, I feel there's a different opinion within the U.S. markets whereby uh, they believe that nearly every asset class or every digital asset apart from Bitcoin, and I believe Ethereum as well, but forgive me, I mightn't be uh, fully correct on that one, is that they deem them as a security. Uh, when you become a security in the eyes of the SEC, it comes with huge implications in terms of sales of securities, secondary um, due diligence you need to make, etc. So... So my understanding is that's where there's uh, been more friction uh, and more confusion with U.S. businesses. Uh, if you're not too well up in the space, uh, you would actually know that a lot of businesses have actually left the U.S. market as well. So there's been a number of U.K. exchanges, a number of different players um, that will go offshore. Uh, there's one thing to go offshore as a U.S. business for a tax or setup or whatever it may so be. But there's businesses that are actually leaving the U.S. altogether because of this uh, lack of, of clarification on the ways in which to operate. So um, maybe one more final note. Uh, prior to the kind of a change of opinion uh, or mass consensus that's been happening over the past six months, uh, there has been a legal case for quite a while now through a major cryptocurrency known as Ripple. Uh, Ripple has probably been around since the first or second cycle. Uh, they're deemed this as an institutional type uh, security. They help uh, international exchange, etc., through uh, on-chain activity. Uh, very good uh, business, by the way, Ripple. They're very forward-thinking. Uh, but they actually went to court uh, with the SEC uh, over the past year or two. Uh, I believe that not only the business, but the founders were sued. Uh, and uh, subsequently, the Ripple case was that they were found to uh, win the case in the end. So Ripple won that case, which set a precedent that Ripple token was not a security. 
which also sets very much a precedent of the rest of the security uh, way of thinking in terms of, of the legislation. So um, basically, it's, they're, they're fighting it out, I would say, in short, right? Uh, but we are uh, humbly watching from the side until we have clarity of, of, of what kind of cap is on. All right, so I'm going to ask uh, this question this way just because of where it's most applicable. I'd say the United States are listeners are primarily Canada and India. Are you able to take investors in those countries? And if so, how would that work? Do you mean in the sense of investors for our, our business or actually users? You can't accept uh, clients in the United States. I understand that. But if you're Canadian or um, you, you know based in Canada or India, uh, can you accept investors from those countries? And if so, how would that work? So within our terms of services, there's a list of maybe 10 to 20 different jurisdictions that we're not applicable uh, to enter into. Some of them are because they're on UN sanction lists. Uh, we don't take users from North Korea, etc. Um, and a few other jurisdictions as well that have been deemed by international authorities as risk uh, or have been simply uh, been suggested not to not take users from those markets. But from, from the way in which our licensing and structure is set up, uh, for the international communities, most jurisdictions were able to basically operate at least our application in. Um, perhaps not to the extent of directly advertising within some jurisdictions, but uh, nonetheless, we're not, users are still able to come across our services and use them as they wish. Um, and as I said, henceforth, uh, they have to sign up to our user uh, terms of service. The AML, the KYC insurance, ensure that everything is above board uh, on uh, international standards of security, best practices, etc. All right. So um, is there anything else you'd like to tell us? Um, yeah, at this point in time, so we're going through uh, major upgrades in the platform. Where are most of your listeners from, may I ask? Uh, in order, it would be United States, Canada, and India. Sure. Yeah, so we have uh, plenty of users in India and Canada at this point in time. So unfortunately, if, if you're from the U.S., please be patient. Uh, we look forward to serving you, hopefully, in, in the coming months and years when, when everything irons itself out, as I've mentioned. But yeah, for any of the listeners out there, basically, we're available on clinkfinance.com. We're available on iOS and Android. As I mentioned, it's a very easy, seamless process to get set up. Uh, as you get set up, we actually reward you with free tickets as well, just to kind of get a feel and motion for how the pricing savings uh, model works on the platform. Uh, by the time you're airing this, maybe towards the end of August to mid-September, we'll actually be moving out of beta. So what that means, basically, is that there's a number of features that are in our test net now that, that are going live. There'll be further tokens available. There's basically a complete upgrade within the platform system, uh, which we're very excited to to uh, launch out of. So please watch this space. Uh, we're all, always available to be uh, contacted either via our support, support channel or directly through our LinkedIn or, or social channels as well. So um, we really are at this product market fit phase. If you are a user uh, or a potential person who might be interested in this, we're always interested to hear what you would like from our services and how we can improve. So. Uh, the door is always open to that level of communication if you do so by chance uh, want to test or trial our services. All right. Again, that's clinkfinance.com. Check it out. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. No problem. Thank you. You know, interesting topic. It's going to be interesting to see when they're actually able to take investments like this within the United States. And I, I'm curious to see where this goes. And if anybody has any questions on this topic, go ahead and send them over. I'm sure that you do. I know I do after all of that. And it seems like there's a lot more information there that uh, we could dive into that we just didn't have time for today. 
But crypto in of itself, we've talked about that on the show before. And, you know, the values have gone up and gone way down and are up a little bit lately. But it still seems, I think, to me, at least in the United States at this moment, that if I was going to do that, I'd use the same money that I would for when I take a visit to Vegas. I'm not sure I trust that investment yet. And I... I know I've said all along, I think there's a place for cryptocurrency. I'm just not sure that we've quite found it yet. You know, some are more stable than others. And and um, Chris mentioned the whole Coinbase thing, which has been interesting because they're trying to, you know, deal with that. Is it a security? And if so, and the other currency that he talked about where they sued and the court said that, well, you're not a security, it's crypto, it's different. And that does set a precedent. Mm-hmm. Um. um Anyway, so it's going to be interesting to see where that all goes and where it ends up. So, yeah, shoot your questions on over. So uh, just to move on to another quick thing here before we close for this week, we are going to be on hiatus for the next two weeks, uh, mainly due to the start of football season. We get preempted. We usually do every year, so it's a good time for kind of a season break. We're going to be coming back into production the third week of September. So we're not gone, gone. We're just uh, taking a little bit of a breather. But during that time, the website will still be there, of course, and keep your questions coming in. And we are still doing interviews. So we'll uh, we'll be out there and we'll still be able to respond. And then when we start, I can't believe it's fall already. Start our fall yeah. season, <laughs> oh my goodness. which will be the next episode. Um, we're getting in, you know, Halloween is what, eight weeks away, nine weeks away now, something like that. Yeah, your favorite thing. Oh, yeah, I know. You know I have a giant skeleton in my garage. At least it's not in your closet. So yeah. <laughs> I don't think that thing would fit. By the way, you can already order those from Home Depot, and they're already selling out. So, <laughs> All right. Well, not until next week, but until next episode, three weeks from now, this is User-Friendly 2.0, keeping you safe on the cutting edge. User-Friendly 2.0 is copyright 2023, User-Friendly Media Group, Inc. All rights reserved. Views expressed on this show are those of the host and not necessarily User-Friendly Media Group, Inc. or this station. Music licensing by VMI. Hosting and technology provided by wearetechnology.com. Listen at theanswerportland.com, userfriendlyshow.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts.